0: Am I on with the speaker? Okay. Blake is um, one of the beloved young men that I have the privilege of mentoring, uh, have had for the last two and a half years or so with him. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, We call it an intergenerational team teaching because uh, there's different generations. I'm 74 and he is 22. But uh, there's more to it than that. It's also a first-person narrative type of message based on Paul's last written letter, 2 Timothy, written about 66 to 67 AD. And he wrote it from prison in Rome Knowing that he was going to be executed by beheading in the near future. And so in this letter, he asked Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. And we see that in the, um, let's see, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6, 9, and 13. Um, this makes it clear that Paul was expecting that Timothy would get there, even though we do not have anything in Scripture or history to confirm that he did get there.
1: Yeah, Uh, as Don said, so although neither neither Scripture nor history tell us whether or not Timothy actually made it there uh, before Paul was beheaded, for what we're doing, we're going to assume that Timothy did make it there. Uh, and so as Don said, we're going to be doing like a first-person narrative style. So uh, I'm going to be acting as though I am Timothy, and Don will be acting as though he is Paul. Um, and this is going to be what we envision may have been uh, what they would wanted, would have wanted to discuss for their very last conversation together on the earth. Um, so Timothy, to make this journey, would have just traveled uh, 1,200 miles, uh, mostly on foot, to get from Ephesus over to Rome. Uh, So this was no small uh, journey for him to take to visit Paul. Um, And as Don said, he's known me for the last two and a half years, and so we've developed a very deep and intimate and personal father-son kind of relationship uh, that we see clearly that Paul and Timothy had. Uh, And so we're just excited to be able to uh, show... The parallels between what we see in Paul and Timothy and what we ourselves experience, um, just in our uh, in our own personal relationship. So we are going to face each other, take a few steps apart, and then when we turn around, we're going to enter into our new personas as Paul and Timothy. So we got to turn back back first. Yep, yep. Mm. <clears> then. <throat> Paul. Oh. <laughs> make it here in time.
0: I was afraid that you wouldn't get here either in time. But it is so good to see you. Uh, I know we would love to hug and just be reminded of how close we are, but on the other hand, we don't want to cling too tightly to what we know is just temporary for both of us. In the not-too-distant future, we're going to be in a place where we will never be separated again with Jesus.
1: Amen. And I know we don't have much time here. And I have a lot of things that I want to discuss with you. And I did bring a gift for you, which you asked me in your second letter. Ah, the
0: manuscripts.
1: The manuscripts and the parchments. And I made a copy for you of the notes that I wrote out so that we could work on it together, we could work through it together, the things that I, made sure, I wanted to make sure that we would discuss before we were done today. Excellent, excellent. <clears throat> um, yeah, and I also brought, I brought a copy of your second letter actually with me, as well as a copy of some of the, the other six epistles in which you graciously mentioned me as your co-author, which is one of the greatest honors I think I've ever received.
0: Well, it's an honor that you so well deserve. Uh, As I expressed in writing to the Philippian church some time ago, no one else has served me in the gospel quite like you. I've had other wonderful yoke fellows, but you have been like a father, I mean like a son to a father, in the way that you have served with me in the gospel. And I expressed that in writing to the Philippians in Philippians 2.22, And that really meant a lot to me to be able to say that about you.
1: Amen. Thank you, Paul. But we do have little time, and there's a lot of things I would like to discuss with you, especially from your second letter to me.
0: Uh, Where would you like to start with that? I know that you always have questions.
1: I always have questions for you, Paul, about anything that you say or write. And the passage I wanted to start with is 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, you said something there that really grabbed my attention. You said, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, heart, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. They're always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Paul, are you referring here to believers who call themselves believers in fellowship with the body of Christ? Or are you referring to unbelievers? Both, unfortunately.
0: There will be many people in our fellowships who will show many of these characteristics that I list here. And one of those characteristics is loving pleasure rather than loving God. And that has just been growing. We we have believers, professing believers, right here in Rome who would rather go to the Colosseum and watch gladiators kill each other than to spend that time in fellowship with the saints in Bible study and prayer.
1: Yeah, I know. I've seen the same thing in Ephesus. And it grieves my heart every single time I see it. Because they're in terrible spiritual danger and they don't even realize it. And they're missing out on the power that Jesus came to give us. But you did describe them well in Titus 1.16. You said they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. But Paul, what is it that makes people act so hypocritically, especially believers? What leads to somebody having a knowledge of the truth but denying its, or never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, or having a form of godliness but denying its power?
0: Well, it's an excellent question, Timothy, and it's one that we need to spend a lot of time thinking about prayerfully. But let's start by looking again at that last, uh, at that first passage we looked at from my last letter to you. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, what root word occurs there several times, almost always in a negative sense, even though the word is one we always think of as positive?
1: Well, let me read it again, and I'll I'll try to see if I can tell. He said, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Wow, Paul, I think the key word there is love. But these people are loving all the wrong things. No wonder they're on the wrong road.
0: That's right, Timothy. They did not let the main thing be the main thing in their lives. Now, what did Jesus say was the most important thing of all, and therefore the main thing?
1: Well, I remember reading in our brother Matthew's gospel, in chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, he said the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And that actually all of the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. And he also said in John 13:35 that by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another.
0: So, it isn't by believing the right things and having the right doctrine that people will know that we are recognized as disciples of Christ?
1: Well, not according to Jesus. And he said something else in Matthew 5, 43-45 about love, which many people have come to know as the, called the Sermon on the Mount. And I wrote it down so that I wouldn't misquote it because it's so significant. It's the only command that he gives this very sobering phrase in the end. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Paul, doesn't that seem really serious?
0: It seems very serious to me. There were many commands that Jesus gave in that Sermon on the Mount. I've never counted them, but I'd guess there's at least 50. But that's the only one to which he attached this sober warning. Hmm. The only one that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Hmm. That really makes it important. See, it's, it's natural for people to love their family and friends. True. Even unbelievers do that. <coughs> but it is not natural to love our enemies. And this is why it is so significant that disciples of Christ are called to love everyone. Amen. They're friends, their neighbors, their enemies. There are no exceptions. Amen. But what Jesus said, does that remind you of something I recently wrote to you
1: about love? Yeah, actually it does. I, I remember from your first letter to me in 1 Timothy 1.5, you said that the aim of our charge or the goal of our teaching is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And when I read that in the light of Jesus' teaching, I, see, I realize even more how love really is the main thing that God is after in all of his teaching towards us. And it's the kind of love that has those three basic characteristics. Love that comes from a pure heart, one that is wholly dedicated to God, one that comes from a good conscience, is not defiled by violating it, and one that comes from a sincere faith, one that totally trusts the Lord in everything that he says and does.
0: You're so right, but there's still more to love being the main thing. And I didn't see this when I was a Judaizer myself, persecuting the church, hating everything that Jesus stood for. I didn't see it because as a Judaizer under the old covenant of law, we were focused on rules and regulations. That's what the old covenant focuses on, rules and regulations. But the new covenant of grace and love focuses on relationships, relationships of love. And that just makes the contrast so great between the old covenant of law and the new covenant of grace. The Judaizers in the church today would have us return to being concerned about rules and regulations. But the Jesusizers, that's us, and I think I just coined the new word. <laughs> the Jesusizers want us to be concerned about relationships of love. Amen. As important as the word of God is, it is only a means to an end. And that end is a loving relationship of some kind, no matter what the word is talking about.
1: Amen, I see what you're talking about. That contrast between the focus on regulations in the old covenant of law and the focus on relationships under the new covenant of love and grace, that really makes a lot of sense to me. But at the same time, Paul, is love all that is needed to avoid becoming a person who has an appearance of godliness while denying its power, or to be always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth? I think the answer is both yes and no.
0: Yes, if one loves God with his entire being, so that he wants to know God's will, he wants to seek God in everything, because if that is where a person is at in his heart, then God is going to show him whatever he needs to see to do what God wants him to do. But the answer would be no if a person is thinking of love for God as primarily feelings. Oh, I have these great feelings of love for God. And yet, it does not compel me to obey him. Mm. I go ahead living the way I want to while having these feelings. There, that kind of love would not be adequate at all. Genuine love for the Lord results in genuine obedience to him. Amen. Not perfect obedience, but consistent obedience. Just as faith without works is dead, so love without works is also dead. That's why I wrote to the Galatian believers in Galatians 5, 6, because they wanted to go back under the law. So I wrote that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters at all. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. Amen. So how would faith work through love to keep one from going down the path of this dangerous deception we've been discussing? Let's see if we can list some important factors in avoiding that deception and how each one relates to love.
1: Yeah, well, I I would think first that a person needs to know what love is from God's perspective. Uh, Because if we have an idea of the world's love in our head, then we're going to be totally off even if we try to love People. And I think the only way that we can really come to know that what that love is from God's perspective is through his word and more specifically through the gospel of Jesus, where we see his love. And a person needs to commit himself to learning the word of God and then to take what he learns and to apply it into his daily life so that he can avoid having a guilty conscience by not doing what he's been learning. And I believe that that practical application of the word of God in our life, to live out that love for the glory of God. I believe that's what you refer to as sound doctrine in your epistle both to me and to our brother Titus.
0: Yes, that is true. And the three key things you mentioned are the word of God, conscience, and sound doctrine. Although there are many things that could be listed here, these three are crucial in order to live a life of faith and love. So let's examine each of them beginning with the word of God. For if a person loves God, he will want to know God's word. He will want to know God's will. He'll want to learn about this person he loves. And as is true with relationships on this earth, there can be no healthy relationship with the heavenly father if we don't have some form of clear communication. And praise God... He has chosen to speak to sinful people through his enduring word. Now, do you know of any particular passages from any letters that I've written to you that you'd like to discuss concerning the word of God?
1: Yeah, actually. This is what I believe is one of the most powerful things I've ever read about the word of God. Uh, It's what you wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. You said, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul, it seems like a person, I've actually met people who are true men of God, even though they have maybe a relatively little knowledge of the word of God. And yet at the same time, I've met people that have a vast knowledge of the word of God, and I wouldn't consider them to be men of God at all.
0: That is unfortunately true. Yes, the word of God is like a map to show us the way, but only if we faithfully obey what it says. Okay. Just imagine someone who gets a map. He, he's, he wants to go someplace. He talks about going there all the time. So he gets maps. And day after day after day, he studies these maps. But he never goes. He never gets on any road that can lead him where the map shows he needs to go.
1: Sounds like a waste of time.
0: It would be a waste of time. In fact, it would be worse if he's somehow under the deception that he's making progress while doing nothing but reading a map. Huh.
1: Yeah, that, uh, to go back to that phrase that you said, or that's in that verse, training in righteousness, that really reminds me of Christ's commission to make disciples of all nations. He said in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, that we ought to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them or training them to obey everything that he had commanded us and that he would be with us always. So according to Jesus, discipleship starts with baptism by being obedient to Jesus in baptism but then continues with the ongoing process of being trained to obey all of his teachings. Kind of like the word of God is supposed to train us in righteousness. Amen. And Jesus also said in John 8, 31 through 32, he said, if you abide, and these are to people who believed in him. These Jews believed in him. They said, if, He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it's only by living in the word of God and living out the word of God that we can truly be his disciples and it's only by faithful obedience to his word which enables one to really know the truth that sets him free.
0: Amen. Timothy, there is so much more to be said about the importance of the word of God, but I'm glad you raised the issue of discipleship. It reminds me of a new heresy that you must guard against wherever you minister. The idea that one can be a Christian without being
1: a disciple. Well, that's impossible. We know, in, we know that Jesus never said to make Christians. In fact, Luke recorded in Acts eleven, in Acts eleven two that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, and that those two titles are just two titles for the same people. There's no Christian apart from a disciple.
0: Yes, and I was there in Antioch when that happened. When people, people in the world started calling us disciples Christians. Now, they were doing it in ridicule. They thought we were foolish to be acting so much like this man from Galilee who got himself crucified. So they started calling us Christians. Little Christ. Look at these little Christs. They're acting just like that original guy called Jesus Christ. But we wore that title proudly. Amen. And it is so important to understand that Jesus did not separate his role as Lord from his role as Savior. You got him together. And this, this heresy teaches that you can accept Jesus as Savior and become a Christian, and then you should go on and accept him as Lord and become a disciple. But that's optional. You don't have to do that. But Jesus didn't set it up that way. That's not the way he talked about
1: himself. That's a terrible deception, because Jesus even said in Luke 14, 26, he said that no one could even be his disciple unless that person loved Jesus more than anyone else, and even his own life, which actually takes me back to us talking about the main thing of loving the Lord our God with all our heart. And speaking of the main thing, I would like to go back to one thing. Um, I would like to go back to the conscience. How, How would you say that the conscience relates to the main thing?
0: Well, love for the Lord makes one want to maintain a clear conscience by walking in his will. In any healthy relationship between a father and son, the son desires to please his father. And if he knowingly disobeys his father, It results in a guilty conscience, and that will lead to one of two things, either confession or cover-up. He'll either confess to his father what he has done and seek to make it right and restore this broken relationship, Hmm. or he'll try to cover it up like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They tried to cover up. the Word of God reveals God's will for us if we are at all sensitive to the Spirit. It's going to reveal all kinds of things that need to change. Amen. And if we're unwilling to make those changes, then we're going to violate our conscience. Because our conscience is saying, you need to make that change.
1: Yeah.
0: And we're saying, but I'm not going to. Yeah. And that is very, very serious. We, we need to repent, to change course, like a sailing ship. It's always being blown off course. Yeah. It has to constantly be correcting. Amen. We do too. That's the role of the conscience, to
1: correct us. Amen. Yeah, and I, I could see that if we're not willing to obey God, then we'll probably have less and less desire to read his word, because every time we read it, it'll just convict us, and then if we're not willing to obey it, then we'll just set it aside and we'll just go further and further away from him. Amen. That reminds me totally of Jonah. He tried to run away from the will of God, and of course we know how that story ended. The Lord brought him back. But that that same thing, I believe, will happen to the believer who's unwilling to obey. He will just simply get further and further away from God and his word. And speaking of Jonah, that actually reminds me of a couple of things that you said about conscience in your letters to me. You wrote in 1 Timothy one nineteen, uh, you referred to holding faith and a good conscience. And you said, by rejecting this... Some have made shipwreck of their faith. And later, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, you actually said that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter days, some will depart from the faith, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Paul, I am beginning to see more and more that following a person's conscience is much more important than many people, even believers, make it out to be. Amen. But how can one best protect his conscience so that it remains sensitive to discerning right and wrong, and never become seared like you described here.
0: I think the most direct answer to that is a passage that I wrote
1: to the Romans. Um, were you able to bring a copy of that letter as well? I was indeed. I think I know the passage that you're referring to, too. It is towards the end of your letter. It's in, I believe, Romans 14, 1 through 6. Let me, let me read it here. You said, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he made anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Praise God. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God.
0: Yes, one strong in faith, as every mature believer should be, may eat anything, even if it has been offered to idols in the marketplace, as you and I now can. But a person weak in faith eats only vegetables, because he's afraid that if he gets meat, it might have been offered to an idol, and that would violate his weak conscience. Mm -hmm. A person strong in faith is able to esteem all days as sacred to the Lord Mm -hmm. under the new covenant of grace, while a person with weaker faith feels compelled to esteem certain days as better spiritually than others, sacred rather than secular, yeah, I mean, as under the Old Covenant. Yeah. But each is to live according to his faith, without despising or judging those who differ on such matters. Now, Timothy, how did I end that passage? Do you see anything unusual about what I wrote concerning faith?
1: Well, let me read it. Uh, I'll read here the last two verses, Romans 14, 22-23. You said, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Yeah, Paul, that faith that you are talking about keeping between ourselves and God can't be the faith that we have in our Lord Jesus, because we are commanded to share that faith wherever we go. It seems to me that you are using that word faith in a way that I don't recall you using in any of your other writings.
0: You're right. This whole passage to the Romans was about the conscience, even though I never used the word conscience in the entire passage. When it says faith, it means faith that something is right for one to do in that situation. Mm -hmm. And if a person does not have faith that something is right for them to do, then their conscience is going to let them know, no, 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 don't do this.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And so you can pretty well substitute the word conscience for faith throughout that passage because mm-hmm. that is the subject matter of the of that whole passage.
1: Yeah, okay, I understand that, but isn't it possible to follow one's conscience and yet still sin? In fact, I actually remember reading... Uh, In Acts 23.1, you actually were able to say, after the life that you had lived before Christ, you were able to say, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. How were you able to say that?
0: Well, you're right again, my son. The conscience is one of the many paradoxes of Scripture. Uh, A paradox is something that seemingly is contradictory, but isn't really, if we correctly understand it. And the paradox of the conscience is this, if you follow your conscience, you might be wrong, but if you don't follow it, you're always wrong. (laughs) (laughs) To answer your original question, violating one's conscience often enough and long enough is what finally sears one's conscience. So that it's no longer sensitive to perceptions of right and wrong, which is a very dangerous place for anyone to be. Mm. And that has led to many making a shipwreck of their faith. Mm. And that includes Demas. In my letter to Philemon about six years ago, I referred to Demas as a fellow laborer in ministry. But in my last letter to you, in 2 Timothy 4, 9-10, I wrote, that Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Mm. If a married person allows affectionate desire to grow for someone other than the spouse, desertion of the spouse becomes ever more likely. Mm. If a person once committed to Jesus allows love for the world to grow, desertion of Jesus becomes ever more likely. In either case, ignoring the warnings from one's conscience allows a person to wander ever further down that dangerous path toward destruction. But let's return to your question about being sincerely misled by one's conscience. How do you think one can have a conscience which does not lead him astray as mine once did?
1: Well, again, I think that we would have to go back to the Word of God. I, um, I believe that it's by training one's conscience according to the Word of God and, and through the working of the Holy Spirit that we can be, as you actually said in your letter, transformed in the renewing of our minds. So that things that we used to think were right, now we know through God's Word are not right. And things that we used to think were wrong, now we actually know are right. I believe that it is that continual reading of God's Word and getting the Word of God into us that we can be transformed in that way. But Paul, now that we have discussed the importance of the conscience in relation to the deadly deception of being somebody who's always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, or somebody who has the appearance of godliness while denying its power, I would like for us to talk about the importance of sound doctrine, and what you mean when you say sound doctrine, and how it relates to both those deadly deceptions and to the main thing of love. And I actually have a couple of passages uh, from your first letter to me that I would like to read as as we talk about that. The first one is 1 Timothy 1, 3. You said, As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then in 1 Timothy six or 8-11, through 11, you said, 1 Timothy 1, 8-11, you said, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly uh, and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust.
0: Yes, and let's pause here for a moment, Timothy. Timothy. Note, as you look at that long list of things, contrary to sound doctrine, that their behaviors, not beliefs. The whole list yeah. is behaviors. Sound doctrine is as much about right behaviors as it is about right beliefs.
1: Yeah, Paul, and thanks to you, that has become a major emphasis in my teaching. In fact, I remember an analogy or a comparison that you've given that has helped me to understand this. Just as having a sound body and mind means having a body and mind that can function well as they were originally created to do in the world that God put us in, so also having sound doctrine leads to us having sound uh, beliefs and behaviors which enable disciples of Christ to function well as they were designed to do when they were born again. And to have that, to have a sound body means to have a balanced body. Everything in the body is balanced and healthy. So I also believe that sound doctrine is to have balanced doctrine that is that is balancing right beliefs with right behavior and practice.
0: Amen. And I'm glad you remember that comparison. But did you notice the phrase I wrote at the end of that passage, which helps to discern what is sound doctrine and what is not? Yeah,
1: in fact, that one stuck out to me so much. You said that you wrote that sound doctrine is anything that is not in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that stuck out to me so much because the, the example that Jesus gave us was laying down his life for his enemies and dying for the very people that were shouting out for him to be crucified. I believe that that, that example of unconditional love, denial of himself, and trusting in God is the pattern of, of sound doctrine that we should follow. And if any of our teaching doesn't lead to those things, if anybody teaches something that results in not loving our enemies or teaches something that that leads us to be self-indulgent or teaches anything that would make us trust in something besides our Lord, I believe all of that wouldn't be sound doctrine, even if the, the teaching about God may seem right. If it ultimately leads to those things, I think there's something that we need to check about it because it may not be sound. And on the cross, Jesus did not only pay for our sins that we would be forgiven, but he also modeled for us how he expects us, his followers, to live. It's an extreme act of grace that none of us could have ever deserved.
0: Yes, Timothy, that is so true. And it is important for us always to remember that all of this is by grace through faith, including the power of the Spirit to live out sound behavior, that this cannot be done in our own power.
1: Amen. And that that is actually one reason that I also brought a copy of the letter that you wrote to Titus, because you wrote something in there that ties the relationship between grace and sound doctrine together so well Um, I want to read it. It's the the second chapter of your letter to Titus. You said, But as for you, writing to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, and working at home kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be, self-controlled, to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not... But showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you.
0: Yes, that is what the Spirit led me to write about sound doctrine. And most of it is instructions on how disciples are to behave. Whether they are older men or women, younger men or women, or bond servants, everything we do is to be done in such a way that all of our behavior makes the doctrine of God beautiful and attractive to those who are watching. But it also shows us that it is the grace of God which makes this possible. The first and better understood side of grace is that which forgives us. It forgives all of our sins and makes us able to come before a holy God. But the second and lesser understood side of grace is the grace of his power to transform us so that we don't stay the way we were. Amen. It's true that Jesus accepts us as we are, but he has no intention of
1: allowing us to stay that way. Amen. He's in the life transforming business. Amen. Amen. Paul, and that's exactly what I've learned from you, and that is what I now proclaim we can no more empower ourselves to live godly lives than we can forgive our own sins. It's all dependent on the grace of God. We have to rely on the power of the Spirit every day. I know that's why you wrote to me in 2 Timothy 2:1 to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. For it is only by the grace of Christ that can make it's only the grace of Christ that can make me strong. And I've learned that time and time again in my walk with the Lord, when I think I can do it on my own, I end up falling on my face and realizing I need to rely on the Lord's grace even more than I was before. And and by the way, Paul, thank you for calling me your son, and even your beloved son, which means so very much to me. You have truly been a real father to me, revealing to me more than anyone else what my heavenly father is like.
0: And you, Timothy, are like a real son to me. Of all the people that I love and would love to see once more before I die, You are the one that I wanted to see most of all. Mm -hmm. And like our personal relationships with Jesus, our father-son relationship with each other is a marvelous gift of God's grace to us, as is the Lord orchestrating things so that we could see each other again.
1: Amen. Paul, it is still not easy for me to think of your death, even though I know that you said in Philippians 121 that that for you to live is Christ and to die is gain. But Paul, tell me again what grace means to you personally as you wait your execution.
0: Timothy, I actually wrote out something very personal to give you, which answers that very question. Let me read it to you, if I can. From Paul to my beloved son, Timothy. Grace means that God loves and forgives me even though I once bitterly persecuted the church and helped kill disciples of Christ. You'll have to read it. Read it out loud.
1: Before he personally appeared to me and called me to serve him. Grace means that he empowered me to work harder for Jesus than any of the other apostles, despite my previous vicious assault on his people. Grace means that I have had the privilege of being Christ's ambassador to both Jews and Gentiles and sharing in his sufferings. Grace means that I have been blessed to serve with many highly esteemed yoke fellows in Christ, though none more highly esteemed in my eyes than you. Thank you, Paul. Grace means that I have run the race and fought the fight, and that there is now a crown of righteousness waiting for me in heaven, though not only for me, but for all who look forward to Christ's return. Grace means that I will die triumphant in the power of Christ, and finally meet face to face with my beloved Lord and Savior. And grace means that I will joyfully wait until you join me in heaven, after you have completed your own journey with Jesus, reunited, never to be separated again. I can feel the Lord's presence here in a way that I don't think I've ever felt it before and it has created in me a deeper love for him and a deeper love for you that I've never experienced before and I truly believe that the Lord is pleased with the way that you have ended your race and I truly believe that he smiles on the relationship that we've developed in him and now I'd like to pray for our very last time together while on this earth before we meet each other in eternity oh gracious father we just thank you so much God, we thank you for your grace in our life. God, we thank you that you have poured out your love on us and that you've made this kind of relationship possible. And now, Father, we pray, God, that in our life and in our death, that in everything that we do, your name would be glorified through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen.
0: And now, speaking as myself, It is an awesome privilege to have Blake as my co-minister, my yoke fellow in this ministry today or ministry any other time. I don't have to act out the feelings that I think that Paul would have had for his spiritual son, Timothy. Because what I imagine that he felt for Timothy is indistinguishable from what I feel for my spiritual son, Blake. I would like, if I could, to somehow enable every father-son relationship whether biological father-son, adoptive, foster, spiritual father and son, I wish I could enable every one of them to experience the joy, the love, the ever-deepening mutual trust, and the ever-growing mutual edification where we build each other up in Christ that God has so blessed Blake and me with enjoying, and I'll let Blake have the last word.
1: Amen. Yeah, it has truly been a blessing. I mean, there is like a lot of the emotions, as Don said, that we expressed in this have actually, through as our relationship has deepened, and we've been working on these these messages together, um, and growing. Just as we're doing this, even just growing deeper and deeper in our fellowship with each other. Uh, It has truly felt to me like I have been walking alongside Timothy and beginning to understand the love that he would have had for Paul and the love that Paul would have had for him. Uh, And it has brought about growth in me personally that I don't think is possible by any other means except for a deep, intimate relationship like this one. Uh, And so I, too, just agree wholeheartedly with what Don just said that I desire and pray that this kind of relationship can be one that is that is commonly found in the body of Christ. Of all places this is this is where we should find this kind of fellowship. So having said that may the Lord bless you all and thank you for letting us teach.